So, if you've got a Bible, would you grab it? And um, we're going to be primarily in the book of James. So, if you don't have a Bible, there's ones right in the seat back in front of you, these little black Bibles like the one I've got. And, and the page that we'll be on in James is page 1072. So, you could turn there, and we'll get there uh, shortly after I give you a little bit of a recap and bring you up to speed uh, to where we're at. So, um, page 1000, what did I say, 72. The book of James, the letter of James in the New Testament. So, um, you can also Google that, and uh, that'll bring up something that'll work for you. We're going to be in, uh, I'm going to be reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, if uh, you're curious, and that's what these black ones are. Okay, so James chapter 2. Um, so as a way of recap, just to kind of get you up to speed, because this is, this is a cycle, so it continues on, and you can always go back and, and listen to the past sermons uh, before this. Um, starts with connection, so first C, moves to conversation, which sort of stirs up the things that we really need to consider, which is the third C, and obviously a word, if you've been around here at Sedaris, that's very important to us. It's a word that the Lord gave to us that... It's, it's actually, the, the name Sedaris comes from the Latin root of the word consider, um, but that's not all we do. That's just such an important step where uh, the conversation of the head moves into the consideration of the soul, which is our heavenly body. So the Latin Sedaris literally means heavenly body. So how do we think about, uh, consider the things that conversation stirs up, the truth that we must examine? How do we do that with our eternal bodies? That part of us, which the Bible teaches, will last forever. Uh, we are told that we will have a resurrection like the resurrection of Christ, which is a bodily resurrection to a new form of existence that's both physical and non-physical, but that is imperishable. What dies perishable is raised imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15. So how do I consider the most important questions of life with that part of me? How do I move beyond just thinking about when I'm thinking about my investing of my time, my talents, my treasures, beyond just this, the 80, 90 years I have here to think about eternity. How, how, how would that change how I think about the most important questions of life? Right? My purpose, my meaning, how to use all the gifts God's given me, right? So, so it's a different kind of considering that we're talking about. It's more than just thinking. It's thinking with your eternal self. And so when we do that, what we've said is, and we invite God's Spirit into that, and, and we, we center our consideration around the Word of God, which God, through the Spirit, inspired the prophets and apostles to write. When we do that, what will happen is we'll experience conviction, meaning that, that thought in the head that I'm considering now moves into the heart or even into the bones so that it becomes so solid and weighty that then it starts to guide the ship of your life. That's conviction. It could happen in a number of forms we talked about last week. But today what we'll say is that conviction in the heart shouldn't stay in the heart. It must work its way from the heart into the world. And if we don't do that, if we don't take this conviction in the heart that comes, we talked about, uh, just in case you weren't here, there's we talked about the four layers of conviction, the ladder of conviction. I Meaning you can have like little convictions that are truly convictions, whether they're you know, political convictions or um, even religious convictions based on tradition, but not on the word of God. 
You can have convictions, and those are important, but they're not most important. You want to raise up the ladder. Ultimately, to you get to what we talked about was big, bold, C, capital C, convictions. Meaning, these convictions come from the Holy Spirit, and I can be sure of that because it's confirmed or inspired by reading his word, talking with other Christians who are um, students of the word, right? So we, can, we need to test our convictions to see if they're coming from the Lord, but when we know that they are, then we can let them out into the world, and then they start to do things. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. My goal today is to show you the absolute necessity of confessing. If we preached a sermon series called The Four C's, we would not be teaching the fullness of what God is trying to do. But I do believe many of us stop short of confession, and we'll see that it means so much more than just confessing your sins. We stop short of confessing, and everything sort of stays in the heart. Kind of gets stuck in there. Next is no way to live, right? So like if you were here last week, and you're like, man, last week was heavy, because it was. I think in the best possible way. And you're like, now we're talking about confession? That's even heavier? I actually want to tell you, it's the opposite. Conviction is heavy, because it sits in you. Like a, like a way too big burrito that you ate the night before, just kind of stuck, and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, Confession is actually letting that conviction out so that it doesn't weigh you down, that you feel light. And that comes, if you have a relationship with Christ, that confession just flows, and that's why Jesus says, uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And you're like, what? But you call me to some really intense, radical things. Yeah, but he said, but I take the heavy stuff. So, Confession, though, you might have, like, all of us have some weird sort of history with that, depending on if you grew up in church or not grew up in church, this idea of confession might, in your mind, seem like one thing. I'm going to show you. I'm, I'm going to do this. i teach you why it's, like, so important. Then I'm going to show you four categories of confession. Then I'm going to give you 15 examples of, so I want to show you this variety of how we do confession. It's not just going into a confessional booth and telling a priest your sin. That can be part of it. But that's definitely not all of it. So it's absolutely necessary. I'm going to show you why. Now, keep it light here. Let me tell you uh, just a little trivial example of, of, of the five C's happening and, and confession happening in my life where I didn't have to, but it was important and it felt good <laughs> and it was the right thing to do. So um, I was leaving in the morning. Allie was about to take uh, Grace into school, my six-year-old son. And uh, so we we're both kind of hustling out of the house and I, I had to get to a meeting and I, I could not find my sweatshirt that I wanted to wear. And so, um, I kind of connected with Allie. We had a conversation, have you seen my sweatshirt? Uh, the conversation led to, she said, have you considered <laughs> um, looking on the back of your closet door? I think I saw it there. And I said to her, I have looked at the back. It's not there. And there was some insinuation on my part that she had put it somewhere where it did not belong. This may or may not happen occasionally in our house. And so, um, I was, I truly believed one thing. I was convicted that it wasn't on the back. So I went into the house to look. I said, fine, I'll go, I'll, I'll go look for it somewhere else. And I said, you know what? Maybe I should consider what she said. And I went and I re-looked because I had already looked there very quickly. I re-looked. And sure enough, it was behind another sweatshirt. It's kind of like doubled up. And there it was. Oh, the conviction of my heart. Of uh, had not believed my wife. She was correct, as she often is. 
And so before, I, I ran outside before she left, and I, and I rolled down the window. You know, it's funny that we still do this for roll down the window, even though it's, you know, everything's a button now. But I was like, roll it down. And she rolled it down. She's still a little mad at me because she knew I didn't trust her. And, and I said, listen, I was wrong. It was on the back <laughs> of the closet. And she just looked at me and said, hmm. you know, and, drove, and then she drove off. So, um, right? But, like, I didn't have to tell her that because she's about to drive off. I didn't have to tell her I found it. I didn't have to tell her she was right. But me just going and saying it out loud, I was wrong, was good for our relationship. It was just honest. I didn't have to hide this little conviction I had in my heart that, yeah, she was right. I just got to tell her, you were right, I was wrong. And then we can move on. It's just such a trivial example. But if I had kept that little nugget in my heart, right, next time the same thing happened again, right? See how it builds up. Confession just brings the truth into the world and into the light. And now she can say, rightly so, well, remember last time you didn't believe me? Maybe you should check. So, just a silly little example of saying, I was wrong, and you were right. Both are parts of confession. I was wrong, God was right. So, let's get into it. Before we get to James, I want to just read to you a very clear passage from the letter to the Romans that the Apostle Paul penned, one of the apostles. Um, He says this. This is Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. So it's going to be on the screen up here so you you can just read along. Paul says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a great verse to memorize. Now he goes on though, and he flips the order, which I think is actually the order this happens in. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. You see, what he's saying is, and I think why he puts them in different orders, he's saying these two parts of the process are interrelated, they cannot be separated. The heart believes or feels conviction of the truth, and the mouth confesses. Both are true. Now, there's other things that you need to believe in your heart besides just that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is sort of shorthand. This is sort of the last act of the gospel that, of course, it only matters that he raised from the dead because he died on the cross for your sin. But if he raised... If God raised him from the dead, it's confirming that everything else Jesus said and did was true and right. So it's sort of shorthand rather than repeating the whole, every act of Jesus' life. But he's saying, like, Jesus is who he said he was. He did die on the cross for your sin. He did raise on the third day to life. And if you have a conviction that that's true, then you must confess it with your mouth to finalize the act of salvation in your life. You can't separate them. That's what Romans 10 teaches. So, now let's turn to James 2. And we'll see this dynamic at play in a slightly different way. And it'll bring it, it'll bring it more to life. So James chapter 2, I'm going to read six verses, starting in verse 14. This, again, is a famous uh, passage of Scripture but I want to make sure you understand it. So James chapter 2, verse 14 says this. What good is it, 
my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? This is interesting, right? Because if you've grown up in sort of Protestantism, they've said faith alone in Jesus Christ leads to salvation. And James is coming along and saying, actually, faith without works is dead. So it would seem that those groups within Christianity who say it's faith plus works equals salvation might be correct, right? Like, this is a very controversial passage that people argue about all the time. Is that what he's saying? Let's keep reading. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, now clearly here he's talking about brother or sister in the faith, that's somebody that's a part of the church, is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, quote, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. Basically saying, I'm praying for you. But you do not give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Whoa. This again, seems, this seems to be saying you need both. Faith and works equals salvation, right? Well, let's keep going. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. Hmm, coming more clear. But then he says something super interesting. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? So, what, what is going on here? Now, I actually did a uh, master's thesis on this passage. And when you study the Greek of the language, there's one very important article before the second reference to faith. This is in verse 14. So many translations, and the CSB kind of draws it out for you, so it's obvious. It's not quite as obvious in the Greek, but it says, can such faith save him? And this is just a normal article for A. <laughs> so can, can A faith save him? Now, the article here is actually referring to a, a previous faith, and that is the faith that does not have works. And what James is saying He's not saying you need faith plus works equals salvation. What he's saying is there's all kinds of faith. Like you, you, so you ask somebody, hey, are you a person of faith? They say, I'm a person of faith. What James would say is, I'll be able to tell if you're a person of saving faith by what you do with your body, with your words, with all that you are. He's saying there's a kind of faith that does not save. It might have, like the demons have, a correct understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is. But yet, nobody wants to be put in the same bucket as the demons. It's not enough to have a kind of faith that just understands who God is. The kind of faith that leads to salvation is a faith that necessarily must work itself out into the world. And if it doesn't, we need to stop and re-examine what kind of faith we have. So, so if you say, well, Dave, my faith, it's, it's an internal thing. It's, it's a personal thing. It's my thing. 
And this is actually the kind of faith that the world wants us to have. That's great. Keep your faith to yourself. Do that on your own. Don't bring it into the world. Jesus says, that's not the kind of faith that I'm giving to people. If I've given you that faith, it must work its way out. You see what he's saying? So, if you refuse to confess Jesus as Lord, you only believe it in your heart, James would say, I believe Jesus would say, that's not saving faith. You've yet to encounter the power or surrender, as we just sang, your life to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father. God is one, and the Spirit is that which interacts with us now in this moment in history. So if you've yet to encounter and surrender your life to the Holy Spirit, you might have a kind of faith that James says is dead, meaning it's useless, meaning in the end it won't work, and even now it's not working, it's not doing anything. So he says faith without works is dead. I think we can say conviction without confession is dead. If you say I have deep conviction but no confession, if your body doesn't do anything, if you don't help people, if you don't speak the words of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, your conviction might be lesser than saving conviction in the person of Jesus. So in this way, confession is... Just like James says, it works itself out into the world, necessarily. You don't like, have to force it to. It, just, it so desires to work itself out, all you got to do is get out of the way and it will. So you can say it like this. Confession is the external or physical expression of conviction. It is a showing of what your heart truly trusts. Or you can put it another way. Confession is an act which makes the wall or division between the internal and the external as thin as possible. You've heard the old adage, wear your heart on your sleeve, right? This is what it's talking about. It's like the things that you're most convicted, that you most trust, are so in control of how you live your life that it's obvious to people what you love, what you're devoted to, What's most important to you? And this leads to, when you give in to this life of confession in all its forms, all this external physical expression of those convictions, you will live, you'll be called such a genuine person, authentic, honest, right? Because you just sense that what they truly believe is what they're truly living out. Oh, am I good? Okay. Jesus will say, actually, because it's not just, see, this is important. It's, James is not just saying, like, do good things. Help your brothers and sisters in the church. Help people in your community in the world. He's not just saying that, because Jesus actually will come and say, listen, some of you have gone around and done miracles in my name, and yet, at the end of days, you'll stand before me, and I'll look at you, and I'll say, I never knew you. Okay? So it's not just about doing good deeds, it's doing good deeds as an expression of this heart conviction about who Jesus is. So you've got to be careful of both, okay? Both a faith that doesn't do anything, that just believes things, and a faith that only does things, but those things that are done don't come out of a deep conviction about the person and mission of Jesus. So you can think about it like this. 
Um, conviction without confession is like potential energy. We're going back to like, I don't know when we learned this, like middle school, remember how energy works? So that's potential energy, meaning like God's storing up all this energy in you through conviction of the Holy Spirit. It then becomes kinetic energy through confession. Now all that potential energy is now let out into the world, right? And what's beautiful about um, uh, confession and why it's so important in the cycle is confession is actually, it's not only linked with conviction, it's also linked with connection. The first C, right? What did we say? It's not a linear line. You don't just go from connection to conviction and then you're done. You go from connection uh, to confession and back to connection. And see, it cycles back. And so when you confess, when your body therefore expresses that which you're convicted of, it will necessarily connect you with other human beings to begin the cycle with again. That's how God's energy his power enters the world. And we just don't want to be the kind of people that stop that energy and save it for ourselves. Right? This analogy is just going to become so much more powerful in like the next 10 years. When like all of our homes are just all this potential energy stored up, right? It's like we never get in our car and go anywhere. It's like, great, you've got a bunch of energy stored up, you're not paying money. But what are you really doing in the world? So we want to take the potential energy of conviction and move it into the kinetic energy of confession that necessarily connects us back into the loop, and then we run it again. This is how Jesus said, this is how I will change the world. So go read the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and he says, i got to go, I need to send the Spirit, because the Spirit's going to give you, not just you, but all of you, the same power that I have in myself so that you can go and take my message of salvation my power into all the world. But it only comes through confession. Okay? So in, in, in this sense, confession is a very communal activity. Conviction is, is, of all the five C's, it's the most personal and internal, and confession, therefore, brings us... We've gone into ourselves, we've understood, we've felt, and now we bring it back out. And um, it's beautiful. It's beautiful when you see the cycle complete. So, let me tell you now four big buckets or categories of confession. Because we've got to get clear on this. Um, here we go. Number one. Confessing our erroneous understanding of who God is. That's the first. So basically, this is like saying, I thought one thing about God. Now I realize I was wrong, and this is who he actually is. Why do I start here? I think this is the place you need to start, particularly if you do not yet know about this power that I'm talking about, this relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Perhaps there's something you're believing about who God is that you need to just confess you're wrong about. That's so important. Um, the, great, the greatest sin, the Bible says, is lying about who God is. There's, there's nothing more basic and important. God says, don't lie about me. Don't lie about me. 
So when you realize that you've been thinking or speaking erroneously about God, you just say, I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. And this sort of confession must come through an understanding of who God's revealed him to be. Not just sort of general thinking about who God is, but like, oh my goodness, God has revealed himself through his word. Uh, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit inspired men who penned the words of the scripture. And so, therefore, these are God's words. So this is who he is. Now, it takes some work to interpret and to understand. Like I just said, like you wouldn't just know about this article in James uh, chapter 2. So it takes some work. And it's okay to have thought wrong things about God and then admit this is the freedom that comes with confession, right? Sometimes we can like think or, or even teach or say wrong things about God, and then we feel so guilty that we've been doing that for so long that when we come to the real truth, when we have conviction of what's really true, we just double down on that thing and say, well, I didn't really mean that, or, or I'm not going to give up on it. Just give up on it. Just say, I was wrong. So it's like the most basic and freeing move of every human being, because every human being has been wrong about who God is. I was wrong. I'm so glad that I know what's right. See, it's always double-sided. It's, oh, I feel I was wrong. But it's also like, it feels so good to just say what's true. There's so much freedom in it. So when you realize that, that's one category of just realizing, confessing, and uh, realizing and then saying out loud, I've been wrong about who God is. And it comes in a hundred different ways. So obviously, first thing is acknowledging he exists, Acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acknowledging that God raised him from the dead. So that we too can have newness of life. Both now and everlasting. Okay, so. Um, confession of erroneous understanding. So the first two are going to kind of be more of the negative side of confession. And the, the second two are going to be more of the positive side. But both are happening in all categories. So the second category, this is the category that many of you probably thought I would only focus on, or it's the only thing you think about when you think about confession. This is confessing your sinful actions. And included in action is any thought, any word, and any deed, which breaks the law of God. So this is like anything from you're in a room of people and they're gossiping, and you don't stop the gossip, or you participate in the gossip, all the way to murdering another human being created in the image of God. God says all of it is in the same category and must be confessed. So this includes both sins of commission, which is um, I was supposed to do that and I did something else. I actually did something and it was a wrong thing. And sins of omission, which is I was supposed to do one thing and I just didn't do it. I just didn't do it. Um, so all of that is included in this bucket. And so when you are experience conviction that you've done something wrong or contrary to the law of God, what do you do? I'm going to give you five things that you could do. The first two I'm going to call necessary, meaning if you want to maintain a strong relationship with God, an effective witness in the world, joy, peace, happiness, love. You need to do these things. The last three are what I'm going to call wisdom. These are good ideas in order to deal with and move through the conviction of 
sin proper, okay? So number one, this is necessary. You need to bring to the altar of God through prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, your high priest, the sin that's come to mind that you feel convicted of. And sometimes you need to cultivate space in order for God to, to reveal that sin to you. And when you do that, you bring it to God. This is the beautiful truth of Scripture. And I would just say, like, if you grew up in some traditions, uh, for instance, uh, the Catholic tradition that says you need to take this to a priest, like, I understand why that practice developed. And, and In fact, <laughs> um, I kind of wish it were more clear like that. But Scripture actually says, no, you have a high priest. You bring it straight to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. So you go, you go right now and bring your confession to God through Jesus. You need to be doing that when sin reveals itself and when the Holy Spirit reveals to you sin. So that's number one. Number two, also I believe necessary is this. Um, confessing your sin to a brother or sister in the faith um, to whom you are estranged or her to whom you've sinned against, whether they know it or not. So let me just go to Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, um, and we're going to be in chapter 5. So that if you're a student of Scripture, you should recognize this teaching of Jesus. It comes in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous moral teaching of all time. This is what Jesus says. He says this. You have heard it said to, your, to our ancestors, so he's speaking primarily to uh, Jewish people. He says, do not, uh, you've heard it said, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift at, on the altar, now remember, this is before Jesus' death and resurrection, so people were still going to offer sacrifice for their sin at the temple. He says, before you go offering your gift of, you could say, confession at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come back and offer your gift. So interesting, right? He's just like, I'm bringing my altar, and then, oh my gosh, maybe it's like new, or maybe it's just you knew it, but you kind of pushed it down, or whatever he's saying, it's like, go be reconciled with your brother or sister. He's talking about in the family of faith. So, I think here this is a necessary act. If you've sinned against your brother or sister in Christ, and God brings it to your remembrance, and remember what he's just said. These can be sins of the heart, the thought that nobody knows about, that you're murdering them in your heart. You're angry with them, you're calling them a fool, or you may be doing these things externally. Or you may owe them money, because the example he uses next is about having a debt with someone that's unpaid. So it could be a number of things, but before you come and bring your gift to the altar, go be reconciled. Now, how does reconciliation happen? Is reconciliation synonymous with forgiveness? The answer is no. 
Because actually, if you've sinned against your brother or sister, they may have already forgiven you. They can forgive you without your confession. But what cannot happen is what? Reconciliation. Because where confession meets forgiveness, there we have reconciliation. So let's say you've been sinned against. I just bring this up to say you can, you can let go of that because being sinned against can be heavy, can it? You can ask God to give you uh, forgiveness for those who have sinned against you. In fact, we pray that in the Lord's Prayer, right? God, forgive me as I forgive those. That doesn't mean necessarily reconciliations happen, but it's prepared your heart for reconciliation. Reconciliation can only come when that, the person who has sinned against the other confesses. So when those confession and forgiveness happen, we can have reconciliation. Now typically, just to be clear, it's usually messier than that. There's usually probably some cross confession and forgiveness that needs to happen in our relationships. But be very, I mean, Jesus said this, right? So we should like be real, I mean, we, all of it is God's word, but when Jesus says it, it's like, we gotta figure out how does this look today, now, in our community? So I think those two are necessary. Now, three things that are wise. Um, three things that are wise. In James chapter five, I don't have time to go read it. Basically, in James chapter five, he talks about if someone is suffering or sick, um, they say, call the elders of the church in and have them pray over that person. And then it says something really peculiar. It says, and if there's any sin, have them confess it. So what's going on here? There's an acknowledgement that suffering may be connected to some unrepentant sin in your life. Now, listen to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's everyone's job in the church to go around if someone's suffering and, and, and say, let me know about your sin. Maybe there's something going on. Right? That, that's very clear that this is related to the calling in of the elders or the pastors of the church to do a time of just exploration. Is there something unconfessed, unrepentant in your life that might be associated with these manifestations of suffering? Okay? So wisdom might tell us to come and maybe ask the pastors of the church for prayer, and maybe in that time of prayer, there could be a sharing or a confessing of sin. Again, this is not necessary, but it could be wise. So I just want you to know, the pastors of this church are available for that if the Spirit prompts you, okay? It can be, God can use particular people, he's given them a particular office or calling in order to help you or give you a place to confidentially confess your sin and help you work through and work towards new life, okay? Um, the greatest example of this, oh, shoot, don't have time for it, is David and Nathan in the Old Testament. It's the most probably the most famous sin in all the world because so many different uh, religious um, groups know about this story. David is the king after God's own heart. So Jesus comes from the line of David. He's the king of kings because David was sort of the example of a great king, a righteous king. He wrote most of the psalms that we sing and study in the book of Psalms. So this guy is elevated as a great man of God. However, there was a time in his life when he saw in a neighboring house, near, near, near his house, he lived, you know, basically in a castle, uh, a woman bathing, 
and she was attractive to his eyes, and so he cunningly invited her into his house, used his power and influence to have sexual relations with her, ended up getting her pregnant, and then to cover up his sin of adultery against this woman happened to be one of his general's wives who was off at war. He brought that general back, tried to trick his general into sleeping with the general's wife so that she would think, or that everybody would think that she got pregnant from him. He refused because he says, I'm not going to go lie with my wife while my men are out fighting. So he refrained. So David's like, dang, what do I do? So then he gives word to another general to put Uriah, that general, on the front lines to siege a city, which was a bad tactic because he knew he'd be killed. He was killed and tried to cover up the whole thing. This is the man after God's own heart. How could he be our picture of what a righteous king is? Well, one, he's not because Jesus is the king of kings. But what did David do? We have a story I've told, you, I've told you enough of the story. I was going to read it all, but I'm just going to read you the end of it, okay? Um, if you want to go back, just write this down. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And basically what happens is God sends a prophet named Nathan. And God reveals to Nathan what's actually happened. Something that only David knew at the time. And Nathan comes in and he starts to tell the story to David about a man who, a, a rich man who cheated a poor man out of his land. <laughs> and David gets angry. And he says, that man deserves to die. <laughs> and Nathan goes, that's you. And David's just cut to the heart, experiences conviction. And rather than having Nathan killed, which I think is probably what most kings of the day would have done, let's just keep covering it up. Sin after sin, we'll just cover it up. David does something really profound. It says in uh, 2 Samuel 12, 13, it says, David responded to Nathan, quote, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. This is intense. But what does David do? He had all the power in the world to keep covering it up. He feels conviction, he knows he sinned, and he confesses it, and he asks the Lord for forgiveness. He realizes who he sinned against, not just Uriah, but against the Lord too, and he confesses his sin. And God used a particular person who had the office of prophet to be the one to help David see his need for confession. So that can still happen today. So there's wisdom in bringing your confession to people that God may have uh, prepared to hear confession, okay? Um, so that's the first wise thing. The second wise thing to do, or number four on the list, is to discuss your sin with a trusted brother or sister in the faith. Somebody who really trusts, who you're confident, can hold that information and not use it against you. I say that very clearly because I don't, I don't want to promote this overly transparent confession process. I think sometimes we can overdo it and it ends up burning us and so never again will we confess a sin because we've had the experience of telling maybe 
a group of people, a cohort, and then those people look at me different. They're unable to process because they are not full of grace themselves. So, you know, it might just start with one person who you feel, I can really trust this person. They're not going to look at me different because they know they're a sinner. There's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in finding that person. And that person, again, is somebody outside of the office of elder or prophet or um, the last category. Now, the, fit, the, the last wise thing or the fifth thing on our list to do when it comes to confessing your sin is think about long-distance confession. Uh, this doesn't mean, like, call somebody that lives on the East Coast <laughs> so that they can deal with your sin. No, this means, like, there's, you kind of confess what's on your heart in the moment or what's so transparent, but then there's this, um, this process of looking, even after you become a Christian and you realize Jesus is your Savior, over your life you might just start looking back and realizing all the times you've sinned against God. It could be years or decades ago, and, and God will bring that to mind. You say, like, well, what's the point in living in the past? It's not primarily, like, Jesus died for all your sin. The, 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 the reason to do this long-distance reflection is that the more we realize how much Christ died for, the more glory he gets. So when you think about your past, and you realize something new that, oh my, I, man, you bring that to the Lord, or you even confess that in trusted community, and what it does is, it in a new way, clears your conscience. Maybe you didn't even know it was there. And in another way, it's evangelistic to tell the world, I didn't even, I thought the cross was like this big. The cross is actually like this big, the more I realize. And so that's why you hear like the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee before, meaning he followed the Old Testament, so he probably didn't have like a ton of sin, but then Throughout his life, when he gets closer and closer to God, he realizes just how sinful he was. And he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. He wrote half the New Testament. You're like, this guy, how could he say that? Because actually, the more and more you know the holiness of God, the more and more you realize how big of a gap that cross filled when Jesus gave his life. So this can be this long-distance confession of uh, you start with the things that are momentary on your mind right now, but then over your life as a Christian, you start to see the mercy of God expanded because you start to see even long-distance sins that you'd almost forgotten about and how God has been faithful over and over again through the cross of Christ. So that's the fourth category or sorry, the second of the four categories, confessing sin. The rest will be a bit faster. But I wanted to focus on that one because that's one that's so hard for us to get our head around. How do we engage in that now? So the third big bucket or category is confessing correct or orthodox understanding of God. So this is um, bringing true truth claims into the world about God. It's a little bit different than confessing erroneous thinking. It's actually learning new things about God and and uh, confessing them. So this would be like the historic creeds or confessions of faith um, that we've talked about, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Confession, all these things. Um, and, you, and, and you confess them, and you teach them to your children. You're not a bad parent to teach them true truth if it's coming from a place of conviction. You say, I want my kids to have a blank slate. There's no such thing. We don't live in a vacuum bubble. Everybody else is teaching them truth. If you have a conviction that God is this, that God teaches this, that, then you teach it to your children. And that's confessing. I'm going to confess to Grayson and Owen that this is who God is, and this is who they are, and that they need God, and this is how to live. I'm going to confess that as part of my job as somebody who's been convicted by the Spirit to teach true things about God. 
So that's category three, confessing true things about God. And then category four is similar, but I just want to say slightly different, so I give it its own bucket. This is confessing an increasing or refining understand, understanding or awareness of who God is. Okay, so this is like, I've always believed in God's mercy, kind of like I just talked about, but today I see a depth to it, a clarity to it, a, a, a majesty to it, a splendor to it that I'd never seen before. And I just need to confess that. Like, I had a small view of God's mercy. I just need to confess that to you guys. Right? I did that last week. I said, after my meeting with Jeff, I had, I had a pretty big view of how important the local church was. After meeting with him, I had an even bigger view. <laughs> That's this category. It's like I already knew it, but now I know it in a new, refined, increasing way. And I want to confess that every time that happens, every time new knowledge enters my mind, every time the scope of a truth increases, Every time the implication of a truth expands, I want to confess that into the world. That's a type of conviction. And again, it can, you can feel kind of like, ooh, if people know kind of that I thought grace was this and then I realized grace was even better than that, they might think down on me because I've been thinking this for a while. No, there's freedom in just saying, I was wrong, I was thinking about this wrong, or, or I was not thinking about this in the way it could. It's this increasing. And when the people of God do that, one, you'll realize you're all the same and you're all like me. And we're always growing in new understanding. And so there's freedom in just saying, I learned something new about God. And this is where confession moves from the heart, through the fingers, and out into the world. That's what we're about. Making the truth of God visible, touchable, experiential for the world to see. Clear? (laughs) Four buckets. I'm just going to run through real quick 15 examples so you can see the variety of confession. So I'm going to go fast. You might have to go back and listen to these, particularly if you're taking notes. Number one, saying, I am a sinner. Confession, I am a sinner. And the next level to that is recognizing and saying, I am the worst sinner I know. So like, how can you say that? Now, I can imagine that there's probably people who are worse sinners than me, have a worse rap sheet than me, obviously. But the worst sinner I really know is myself. Now, if you're married, you're probably thinking like, is it my spouse? <laughs> no, it's you. You know yourself better than anyone, and you know the folly of your heart. You know it, right? So, I am a sinner is one thing. And then coming to this realist and confessing, I am the worst sinner I know. I know that there's wickedness in my heart. I know there's selfishness in my heart. I know how hard it is for me to do the right thing. That's okay. There's freedom in that. Because I know Jesus, which is the second example. Confessing that Jesus Christ is my only hope for salvation. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Because Jesus is Son of God. That's the most important confession that you'll ever make. It's this personal testimony that you'll say a million times over. And in part, you say it because you confess the first thing, that you are the worst sinner that you know. And you can't work yourself out of this debt. And Christ took it for you. He paid it. He paid it all. The third on my list of 15 is baptism. So whereas your personal testimony is just saying to anybody that will listen, Jesus Christ is the only one that could save me, and he did. 
um, baptism is a public confession where that truth that you know and you've spoken privately, now you say in front of the whole church and hopefully in front of a bunch of people running at Green Lake at 10 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday. <laughs> if you've done, that's how we do baptisms at Sedaris. It's a public confession of the first two statements. I'm a sinner and Jesus alone can save me. And he has. Number four, affirming the historic creeds, like I already mentioned. These are formal confessions, or you might even say communal confessions. Like, it's saying, I believe these things, but also we believe these things together. It's a communal confession of truths about who God is. This is, again, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Westminster Confession, things like that. Number five, doing something differently or completely new because your desire has changed. And when you do that with a sincere heart, like if you start living differently, that's confession. You say like, well, th- yes, that's confession. The conviction that you've had is changing the way you live. It's a part of your confession. Even if you don't explain why, you just are doing something differently. I'm coming to church on Sundays now. Why? Something's changed. I don't know why. <laughs> I just, I have a new desire to come. Do you see? That could be a million different things. Uh, related to that, but not exactly the same, is number six, obeying a clear command of God with a sincere heart. All of these are with a sincere heart. So not just doing something with an insincere heart because you want to be a part of the community or you don't want somebody to get mad at you, but because you truly believe God's asked you to do that. The reason this is slightly different than just doing something differently or new is doing something differently or new may or may not be prescribed by Scripture. This is clearly saying, I'm going to obey this thing whether I desire it or not because I desire to do it because God said it and I can trust God at his word. So this is a type of doing something differently or new that's rooted more in trusting God than even a new desire. Now, the hope is that God will give you a new desire to do the things that he said, but it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you start by doing it just because you trust God at his word, and then over time, that becomes a new desire for you. But that's a confession. Well, why are you obeying God? (laughs) It's a confession of who he is. He's Lord. That's why I obey him. You see how it's a confession? Just by the way you live, obeying his word. Okay, number seven, helping someone in need. Now here, particularly, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit moving in your heart to see that a person, to see this particular person or this particular need, afresh, anew, in clarity, and for the first time moving towards it, not just because it's good to be a good person, but because the Holy Spirit has prompted you to do that. And it's now a confession of the conviction of the Spirit. Somebody might come to your mind. This person needs conviction, or or, sorry, not conviction. This person, sorry, don't do that. This person needs encouragement. I send them a text. I feel that the Spirit's, and what if I get it wrong and I sent somebody encouragement that didn't need it? Okay, tough, okay, you'll be all right. (laughs) But it's like, if God's uh, prompting you. Now, the the best illustration of this that Jesus gives us is uh, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not saying that everybody you come across, but God will put people in your life, and he'll prompt you to help them. It doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, what category they belong to, socioeconomically, whatever. You help them because God's put them in your path. And you feel, see, that's a, convic- a confession of a conviction in your heart. Now, it won't happen with every single person, but you're asking God to prompt you, and when he does, you act. Number eight, sharing a, a new personal insight or revelation or new understanding of who God is. We talked about that. So what he's done for you or what he's done for you in the world, you start to see more truly what that is. And so you go tell people. The key here is that there's been an elevation of knowledge. And so you share that insight or revelation that you've had. Share it as quickly and, uh, as you can. 
You reading your Bible? You have something new? Text that. I never knew this. You, you know? Share it with your cohort. This is why cohort is so important. God will reveal something to you as quickly as you can. Confess, share that insight that he's given you. There's power in it, right? Because most of you think, I only go to cohort when I need something. I'm telling you, go to cohort when you need nothing, but you expect that there's somebody that God's going to bring to that cohort that needs to hear a word from you because he's revealed something to you. How different would that look if you went to cohort for that reason rather than what you need? You see? God is revealing things to you, not just for you, but so that you can share it with someone else. That's the way this thing works. And God's power and truth transform our community and from our community, our city, and from our city, our nation, from our nation, our world. Don't get in the way of that. If he gives you something, share it. You never know how God is preparing somebody to hear those words. Number nine, singing. Communal worship, like we're going to do here in just a second, with a sincere heart. He's like, ah, I don't really like singing out loud. It's your confession. You're coming together amongst your brothers and sisters and some who are yet to know. And, and, and they're sitting here. Maybe you're like that. You don't know if this is true. And you're going to wonder, well, are they going to sing these truths out loud? Or are they just going to hold them in their heart? God says, come together and sing. I hope that anybody that comes into this room that doesn't know if Jesus is who he said he was, by the way we sing, would know something's going on. Either we're all crazy or there's real power because of how we sing. I don't care if you've got a terrible voice. You sing. Actually, the worse your voice is, the more profound your confession, okay? <laughs> like, that's just true of everything. Your personal testament. If you're terrible at public speaking and you come and you publicly speak, that's a powerful confession. Be weary of snake oil salesmen, <laughs> okay? Okay, so that's singing communally. Maybe, number 10, raising your hands. We don't do that a lot at Sedaris. It's not prescri- you don't have to do it, but if you feel with your body that you want to express something like surrender or something like, God, I'm giving away myself, my sin, my hands are, o-. if you want to do something with the rest of your body, if you want to dance, dance, right? Let the conviction of your spirit work itself out in your body. So that might mean for some of you, that are terrified to raise your hands in worship, you might raise them. I'm not saying you have to. You don't have to stand. You don't have to do anything. But if you feel convicted to express with your full body worship, if this helps you feel like you're worshiping, then do it. Don't feel like you can't do that. That's a confession of what's happening in your heart. Number 11, saying amen. Thank you. That was a trick. You did it. Amen in the Hebrew and in the Greek just means that's true. Not true, true. True, true. Or when you're praying, why do you say amen? You say, let that be true. Let that come true, right? That's what you're praying. It's an expression of the veracity of a thing, like that's true. So if I say something, you can say amen because you're saying, I know that's true. So if no one ever says, like we could get in the habit of this. I I know it's a struggle for us, but it's okay. If If I say something that's like, boom, it hits your heart, you're like, just amen. Amen? Okay. We can do that. Let that be true. Okay, number uh, 12. Again, I've already been through, so I'll go back. I was wrong. Saying I was wrong. Just that phraseology. I was wrong. In thought, word, deed, I was wrong. Number 13. Sharing the gospel with the world is our confession. That's evangelism. It's not a dirty word. 
It's sharing the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, which includes having to share that, yes, the whole world has fallen short of God's glory and has sinned against God, just like David did. It's okay to say that. It's not a mean to tell people the full gospel because you're also telling them about the Savior who takes upon the sin of the world. But I'll tell you this. If, if you have friends who do not know Jesus, which we all do, and they never hear you share the good news, do you think that they think you have a conviction that it's true if you never share it? I would never, like, it, like it, I would never go to a restaurant that my, I know my friend's gone to like a hundred times if they've never said it's good, right? Like, you're just assuming it's cheap and, uh, and it's near their house, right? Like, like you, part of your confession is sharing the good news, the gospel. Number 14, um, giving. Your time, your talents, your treasures, which includes your money, to the thing God convicts you to give it to. Again, not popular, but this is the reality. If you never give anything of value away to the things that God says are valuable, then you probably don't have a conviction that they're actually valuable. I'm just being honest with you. Jesus said it. If you don't trust me, trust Jesus. He said, show me where your money is, and I'll show you where your heart is. So you probably have never had conviction in your heart if you don't give anything time, talent, or treasures to the things of God, to his mission, to the things he says are valuable. This is a confession when you're willing to give away things of value to something of more value. It it confesses what's most important, what's most true, what's most real, what's most weighty in your life. And then finally, 15, we're about to do it here in just, just a few seconds, communion. And the reason why we do it every week at Sedaris is not because every week you need to be forgiven of your sin. Once you give your life to Christ and you confess that he is Lord and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ, or that, that was raised from the dead by the Father, you are saved. You're justified. It's done. It's a done deal. So we don't come to this table because without it, and if you die not having taken it, you'll die. We come to this every week, one, because there's probably some unconfessed sin in your life. So before you come to this table, take a moment. Have God reveal to you, is there something I need forgiveness for? And pray in that moment, God, Through Jesus Christ, I pray for forgiveness. And then you come to this table because the second thing that happens is you're publicly confessing that you can be saved only through the body and blood of Jesus. And and we like to do it where you actually have to stand up and come forward. So there's a table over here with individual cups and a table over here. Um, And you just by getting up out of your seat and walking forward, you're confessing that this is my only salvation. It's through Jesus. That's why we do it every week i got to confess that over and over again, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus died for my sin, that God raised him from the dead, and I'll eat this again with Jesus in eternity. It's beautiful. I hope you see it. If you've never confessed that, and today you want to confess Jesus as Lord, that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confirmed that he is who he said he was and he did die for your sin, you can come to this table this morning as a confession that I need Jesus and a confession that he gave me everything I needed.